Immediately following uh, chapel today starts off a week of 24-7 prayer here on campus as we pray for this campus, uh, for our nation and beyond, for all the nations. Um, you can find um, prayer prompts around all you, all, if you are students, staff, or faculty, you've already received an email from me that includes a link um, to sign up for a time. And we encourage you to do that. And then our prayer will also be extending to different locations um, around the country as well. And we encourage you, those who are visiting, to join us in the coming week um, in prayer. It's one of our primary initiatives this year on campus, and we would love to have you join us in that. Before we turn our minds and our hearts uh, to God's word together this morning, will you join me in prayer? We bow our hearts, we bend our knees, we offer our lives, our hearts, our soul, our minds and our strength in, in pursuit of complete surrender. Father, that you would have it all. You offer the greatest sacrifice to give us back life in a way that we could never have created it for ourselves. May we lean into your grace, relish being your children, and hang on your every word. Lead us there now, in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning I found some mail that was not supposed to be in my mailbox, but it was there, and um, it's actually all addressed to uh, President Hoekstra. But what's a little federal offense between friends, right? And uh, no, that was a parent complaint. <laughs> Solicitation, Wall Street Journal, yeah, Dort College, you're awesome, blah, blah, blah. Parking ticket. <laughs> Schedule for Defender Days. Stephanie Hahn, you uh, made the cover. I thought you were sitting back here somewhere, right? There you are. You might want to keep that one. This last one looks interesting. It's, uh, it looks like a love letter from Mrs. Dr. Hoekstra. problems when we come to the beginning of the book of Revelation is I think often we treat it like we're reading somebody else's mail. To the angel of the church in Sardis, right? To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? And right away, right off the bat, we sort of feel like this is for somebody else. But what's so fascinating about the seven letters to the seven churches is that there's this incredible movement that falls goes all the way through the book of Revelation and all this vivid imagery and symbolism where you come across numbers and, and animated creatures. In 404 verses that fill the entire book, over 600 echoes, allusions, quotes, all harken back to passages of the Old Testament in order to give us meaning. And this number seven repeatedly throughout Scripture and then again throughout Revelation is this number of fullness and completion. And the seven letters to the seven churches aren't to the biggest churches or the best churches. They're just seven representing the churches of all time and all places like the ones represented here. 
And so when we read these letters, we really read a letter to us. And when we get to this letter today, what I want you to hear as it's read is, to the angel of the church in Sioux Center, write. And the fullness of God's promises and the fullness of God's revelation is found here for the fullness of his church as it's found expressed in all times and places. You ever wondered why later on in the book the number 666 comes up as the mark of the beast? It's because 666 is a three-time failure to be seven. It is incomplete. It is incomplete. It is incomplete. It cannot be. It cannot deliver. It is a pack of lies again and again and again. And numbers and symbols like this happen throughout the book. And we've been spending a lot of time the last several weeks each taking one chapel to spend on each of the seven letters to the seven churches. John, of course, is on the island of Patmos, 35 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey. And here you can see that the letters would have been circulated probably in the way that a mailman would have delivered them. And we come today to this letter to the church in Thyatira. One of the things that I'm fascinated by in the literary genius of how this book is constructed is if you look at the seven letters to the seven churches, they form a chiastic structure. There's similarities literarily between books or letters 1 and 7, 2 and 6, 3 and 5. This is what we call a chiasm or a literary sandwich where the deepest meaning is found right in the middle and then they all inform the meanings of the other letters back out. So each letter stands alone, but each letter also stands in relationship to the others and they give a deeper meaning when they are all read and considered together. One of the audio cues that would have happened when these letters get read is you notice that when we hit the fourth letter, the ending that happens, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches, to those who are victorious. But then we get to Thyatira and the order switches. It's sort of an audio cue for anybody who would have been listening to this being read aloud that something significant is happening here. You can see other similarities between these. The extreme warnings are for one and seven. There's a theme of faithfulness and testing in two and six. In Pergamum and in Sardis, there are some who are staying and there are some who are straying. There's a dividedness within the congregations. And then we get to Thyatira, right at the middle. This is the the beef in the literary sandwich. It's right in the middle. And in many ways, then, this is really the central thing that Jesus is trying to teach all of the churches. And yet, in Thyatira, oddly enough, is the least known, least important, and least remarkable of the seven cities referred to in the Revelation. It has the place of prominence right in the middle, but wouldn't it be just like Jesus to speak the loudest to the places in the margin? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus finds his place and his gaze firmly fixed over and over again in the least, in the lost. He looks into the margins and he sees these things. Like the people throughout countries who continue to say, or in different places, talk about the middle of this country, like the flyover states. They're still saying, can anything good come out of Sioux Center? We're kind of our own little Nazareth here in the middle. Maybe these words are still today as much for us as they were for them. And yet all the while, here's the remains of the church in Thyatira today. Surrounded by modern buildings, rubble in a park that children play on. Now here's the letter. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. 
I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. And that you are now doing more than you did at first. As each of these letters start and then continue on, they have a sevenfold pattern within each of them. To the angel of the church in, and then these are the words of the I know statement, but I have this against you. And then you can see sort of in this chart that I've built here how they all fill out, and I've highlighted Thyatira here down the middle. And I want to look at the specific ways that Jesus both reveals himself and challenges the churches that he knows so well. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God. Interestingly enough, for a book of the Bible that seems to be the most directly written by Jesus himself in the way that it's passed on to us, This is the only time in the entire book that he ever refers to himself as the Son of God. Why would he do that in the letter to Thyatira and Thyatira alone? This is the remains of the temple of Apollos there. Apollos was the son of Zeus. He was the son of God, also called Helios, or the god of sunlight. Now Caesar, of course, at the time is believed more widely to be the incarnation of Apollos. And Caesar worship in temples all around the Roman Empire are popping up and becoming more mandated. This is the reason why John himself is on the island of Patmos, because he would not offer up a divided heart. He would not offer up allegiance to the man who referred to himself as Dominus Aedus, as Lord and God, who renamed the Roman Empire the Eternal Empire and actually named his son, Son of God. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? In the place where Apollos' temple is the Son of God, Jesus reveals himself, I am the Son of God. Remember at the beginning in chapter 1, he talks about he's the one who holds the seven stars. You know what Domitian, who was emperor at this time, did on his coinage? On the back side of the coin that didn't have his face had a picture of his son holding seven stars. Every statement that Jesus is making in the middle of this is political. He is differentiating himself from everything that the world is promising. For all the temptations for the people who would have been looking and living within their culture. For all the voices that would have been asking them to bow the knee to this. To just give a little bit here. Can't you just give an inch on, man you people are so standoffish. Jesus is speaking boldly. And he's drawing the lines clearly. Look at the way he keeps revealing himself. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire. Eyes like blazing fire that pierce you. Later on he goes on to say in verse 23, I am he who searches hearts and minds. This past Sunday at my home church, uh, Gary Nienheis, our pastor, preached one of the best sermons I've ever heard. And it was on the Holy Spirit. And when he started off, he started walking through everybody. And what was remarkable to listen, people couldn't tell if they were supposed to turn their heads and look at him or not. And he kept walking all the way. And he was talking about the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit moves in us and is among us and through us. And what struck me the most was how uncomfortable everybody was when he was doing this. But look at the way that Jesus reveals himself in the middle of this passage. Eyes like blazing fire, like I can search out your soul. Like Jesus doesn't just read the expression on our faces, he reads the fine print written on our kidneys that he put there from the very beginning. Eyes like blazing fire, searching us out. 
revealing all these things about us. Jesus isn't the one who stands at a distance. When we hear a sermon and we come to his word, we got to be thinking about Jesus as the one who's working all the way in us, digging through all the dark corners of our lives, all the places that we've compartmentalized and we've set aside and don't always hand over to his lordship. And he's knocking on the door of that saying, I want that too, that's mine. I want it all. And then he demonstrates this through his intimate knowledge. I know your deeds. I know your love. I know your faith. I know your service, your perseverance. I know that you're doing even more now than you've done before. Ephesus, the other churches before this, they didn't get accolades like this. This is an incredible summary of what this church is doing. And as a reader, you kind of hit this point wondering, man, alive, if, if Jesus would say all of that about me, what's there left to say that's really negative after that? That's pretty high praise. What could be missing? Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. What on earth is going on here? Why does this extended longest section of any of the letters of Jesus just laying in hard into Thyatira? Why? And who on earth is Jezebel? This woman is not very popular in Jesus' books in this church, is she? But in order to find the meaning of this, as is so often the case in Revelation, there probably wasn't literally a woman named Jezebel. People wouldn't have named their daughters Jezebel. Just like I don't have a lot of friends named Cain or Adolf or Judas. Nobody would have really named their daughter Jezebel. So it's going back to the Old Testament. And who was Jezebel? Look at the way she's described here. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. This still seems strange to us. We need to understand in Thyatira, the most significant thing about this insignificant city was that it was at least the center of all the trade guilds. In a place of manufacturing famous for its purple cloth, right? Lydia, that we meet in Acts, came from Thyatira. It's, it's a famous center of commerce. They, they produce copper and all different metals there. They smelt these, and they're famous for it. That's why Jesus has such firm feet. Made out of the very thing that everybody there prizes. Jesus, again, is revealing how intimately he knows this church and their setting and the pressures that they face and who they are and what it is that tempts their hearts away from full obedience. The trade guilds who would have met in places of, of worship. They would have met in the different temples. This is what trades guild did. And, then, and maybe you didn't even believe in that God, but you at least had to go to the place. It would have been economic suicide in Thyatira if you didn't at least show up and pay a little bit of homage. And, and so what if they offer you a glass of wine at that dinner that was also offered up to that God? Or if the meat that they served was part of a portion that the rest of it had gone to that God? I mean, you, you got to do what you got to do, right? And, and not everybody understands what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. So you just got to pay your dues. And you know, like in the, in the real world... I have heard that line used so many different times. I have heard that line used to justify concessions in church council rooms. Yeah, but Aaron, in the real world, as if Jesus died and rose again to save a fictitious Tolkien imaginary world. 
Jesus came for this world. And we either believe or we don't that the wisdom of Christ still plays in real places and in real lives and still is the promise that we cling to in each and every situation. William Barclay in his commentary on these trades guilds in Thyatira says it like this. These trade guilds had common meals together. The meal would begin and end with a cup of wine poured out as a libation and offering to the gods. It was in fact a, a heathen form of grace before and after the meal. Could a Christian join in a ceremony like that? Still further, such a meal would almost certainly follow a sacrifice. That token part of the animal would be offered on the altar, and the meat of it would be given to the worshiper to make a feast for the members of the trade guild who were there for a meeting. Could Christians sit and eat meat which had been offered to idols? Could he participate in a meal where the meat had already been offered to Apollos? Or the, whatever other local god there was, maybe even Caesar? Still further, this trade guild feast not infrequently degenerated afterwards into carouses where drunkenness and immorality were the order of the day. Could Christian participate in the feast where drunkenness and fornication were the accepted thing? How long do you just make an appearance? How do we stand in this place with our culture all around us begging over and over again for the slightest of concessions in our faith? And then the mental gymnastics and justification that each one of us engage in to allow ourselves over and over again to get pulled in a little bit. We talked last week in the letter to Pergamum that nobody wakes up, no follower of Jesus wakes up one morning and says, today's the day that I sell out. It happens a dollar at a time. It happens one little bit at a time. Students of Dorn College, let the alumni around you, parents tell you, these choices come hard in life. And the pressures are real. And Jezebel still has her prophets today. The Jezebelian voice still calling for a little bit of compromise on the part of Christians. Jezebel's voice was the voice of both and. You remember her story, the daughter of the king of Tyre? She married Ahab. She was a worshiper of Baal. She built an altar to Baal in Samaria. She built Asherah, these wooden symbols, constructed dedication of the goddess Astarte. She paid for 850 priests of Baal in Israel, and then she killed any prophets who spoke against her. Basically, her main argument is, was, you can have Yahweh and you can have Baal. Remember Elijah's showdown with her? Stack the deck against my God and see if he still does not rise above whatever it is that you want to put forth. And then the prophecy about her life comes true as she gets tossed from a window, crushed on the bottom, blood splattered everywhere, nothing left of her. You see the threat that comes in this passage? Jesus isn't playing. Jesus didn't come and sacrifice to have part of our allegiance he came for at all. And as Christians in America and in countries all around the world today, we have such a hard time knowing how to be in and not of the world. And we play with the tar baby over and over again of different aspects of our culture, hoping it's just not going to wreck us up. This passage refers to the deep things of Satan. Most scholars believe that what that refers to then is that people would claim to be so impenetrable that they could go into the darkest, most tempting places of culture and they'd be able to stand firm. But often they had to give a concession just to get in the door and then maybe one more along the way. And this is how our lives lose total and complete allegiance to God. And these are the ways that Satan is so masterful at tripping us up. It's my favorite line from the movie The Usual Suspects. Kevin Spacey's character of verbal kin. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. It's the same thing in each and every one of our lives. These are the places where it gets in. It's slow and it's insidious. It's just a little bit of both and. 
And it's probably different uniquely for each and every one of us. Tony Campolo, when talking about Christians trying to play with politics, says it like this. Mixing religion and politics is like mixing ice cream and manure. Doesn't do much to the manure, but it sure does ruin the ice cream. How eloquent. We have to understand how serious this really is. It's the same little lie that Satan offered in the garden as the same one he's whispering to us today over and over again. And we need to understand that splitting the allegiance of our hearts is more destructive than splitting atoms. It is so detrimental to our overall health. It's like going into a doctor for a checkup and then he says to you, well, you just have, it's just a little bit of cancer. I, I wouldn't worry about it too much. That's not how this works. It's more dangerous than that. One of my favorite authors says this, I remain convinced to this day that if we continue to lose young people in the church, something we're going to talk about all next semester in chapel, it won't be because we made the gospel too hard, but because we made it too easy. I think so often we have this belief over and over again that we need to make concessions because that will be more appealing. But what every human heart is longing for is the fullness of the gospel. It's the aliveness of Jesus Christ. It's the promise of, I have come to give you life and that you would have it to the full. These are the promises of God. You recognize these? The five solas of the Reformation? I was on the way home from West Africa two weeks ago, and there were two guards, strangely enough, um, in security in Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, and they were trying to figure out and remember what the five solas of the Reformation were. This was a great moment for me. <laughs> I don't often have great things to contribute in security conversations, but this time I really did. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Solus Christus, Soli Deo Gloria. That one sound familiar? You know what's in common of all these five solas? The sola part. The alone, right? By this alone. The reminder over and over again that you can't have both and Jesus wants all of this. I want to give you life. I want to give you all of these things. And if you have a divided heart, if you have a divided heart, I'm going to have words with you. So I'm the one who searches hearts and minds and I didn't come for half of you. Or 75%. I came for all of you. I stared at this for a little while last night and asked myself, what are we actually defending? Like, what does the offense think when they go on the field? <laughs> like, do they get a different jersey or... We're defending the integrity of our hearts in a world where it's hard to do it. We remind ourselves over and over again, defend our nation, defending ourselves against an allegiance and a heart that can be divided. And so the passage goes on. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to the teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. 
And to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule over them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Can you hear the promises of Jesus to all of those who will stand and not allow themselves to have a divided heart, who will not compartmentalize anything? Because if we compartmentalize any part of our life apart from the Lordship of Christ, then we let it operate under a different set of rules and a different set of allowances, and it becomes the the way that we get tripped up. It's, It's the open door for every lie that Satan starts to stuff through. And I love this promise. I will give authority over the nations. The one thing everybody in Thyatira would have been afraid of. If I don't go along with this, then I miss out. If I don't go along with this, then they will be above me. If I don't go along with this, then they get all the chips and I'm not even a part of the game anymore. Look what the promise Jesus offers them. What everybody else thinks they can offer you, I actually own in abundance. Every beat of your heart, every breath that you take, I gave it to you. I own it. And all of those who don't claim me, I give them theirs too. I I own all of this. I will give you authority over the nations. You will not be below anybody else. You might feel like that. The world might want to tell you that. Satan might want to tell you that. But you need to understand your place and where this is all going. See, because that's the problem with Baal. Baal worship is the god of nature, was just the god of nature as things already are. Every other god of nature in the ancient world was the god of things the way that they are. You just have to deal with it. You know, like the real world. But you see, when you have Jesus who owns a heart in its entirety, he is continually collapsing the future into the present. And Jesus isn't happy with the way things just are. That's where concessions come in. For the voice that speaks in this book that I am making all things new, I am the first and the last, I am the beginning and the end. I am the ruler of the kings of the earth. These are the ways that he reveals himself. Oh, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I kind of have all of this, and I know where this is going. And you, you, my people, are coming with me. Take heart, no matter what the world says. And I will give you that, that one, the morning star. There's two understandings of the morning star in the ancient world. The morning star was often referred to as Venus. Venus was the symbol of, of victory and of sovereignty in the ancient world. The other thing we know about the morning star is that the morning star is a star that doesn't appear until the darkest point of night. And then in the darkest place it appears with the promise that dawn starts coming behind it, roaring on the horizon. You ever been in a dark place? You ever felt pressured? You ever felt like whatever I'm looking at in front of me, the deck is stacked against this, this isn't going to work? This is Jesus' specialty. In dark places where he rolls away stones for us. And in the light of every threat that faces us to offer the promise of a resurrection and something new. To offer us himself. This is why we guard our hearts. This is why we guard our lives. This is why we defend these things, defender nations. Will you please rise? In a form of litany or responsiveness with me, I want to say something to you, and I'm going to ask that you would say it back. I will say to you, worthy is the Lamb, and I want you to say back to me of my undivided heart, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. 
Let your heart sing this closing anthem of offering to the one who is above us, through us, and in us.